This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thank you for listening to the Martinis and the Macabre podcast. This show contains graphic content and explicit language and is intended for immature adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Yesterday we had a guy come into work who doesn't work at our place. He works for the company, you know. He just kind of fills in. He's a floater. Yep. And great guy. He's like the sweetest guy ever. He's very nice. And waited on a customer. I'm not going to bother describing. But you can see her on season two of Dope (laughs) on On Netflix. (laughs) Getting pulled out of a car by a man with an M4 The meth lady. We've spoken at length about her. She came in and... She's got... free right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right now. Till she gets pulled over in your parking lot again. Yeah. <laughs> Most times I'd be like, that's silly, but no, it could happen. So she bought a half pint of vodka and she left. And he looked at me. He was like, what? And I was like, you know what it was, right? And he said, no. I said, okay. I said, do you have Netflix? He said, yeah. I said, great. There's this little ditty called Dope, and it's a docu-series. In every episode, they document a different drug. Um, cocaine, crack, heroin, opiates. Opioids. Them too. <laughs> I said, Muncie got the meth episode. And he kind of rolled his eyes. He was like, yeah, I can see that. And I'm like, yeah, totally. She got stopped right in front of the store and pulled out of the car. And he was like, Her? I was like, yeah, dude. I said, got pulled out of the car. I was like, what'd I do, officer? I said, you know, the only reason you're seeing her now is because she doesn't have meth. If she's out of meth, she'll come and get vodka. So you Liquor won't... is her fallback. Yeah. Yeah. It's her go-to. And so, hey, that's her plan B. And <laughs> I said, you won't see her a whole lot because she loves meth. She's crazy about meth. God... She's all about the meth. God bless this meth. Yeah. <laughs> and... He was like, oh, Billy? Yeah, buddy. Am I in danger here? And I was like, mm, a bit. <laughs> I'm lie to you. Yeah. Well, Billy's picking up dirty needles from outside the store yeah. and shit. <laughs> I'll never forget that. We were doing the delivery and it was a co-op and another company was over there picking up their stuff, you know. And I told the owner's kid, I was like, hey, watch out for that uh, heroin needle. And he was like, <laughs> Oh, Billy, you're crazy. They, you know, they talk about you a while. You're a funny guy. I'm like, yeah. It's right by your foot. And he looked down. He's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and oddly enough, two days later, that needle was gone. And Which means someone picked it up. Somebody picked it up. I didn't call to have it removed. 
That means somebody was walking down the alley and was like, jackpot, and picked it up. <laughs> Plastic gold. Man. <laughs> All right, guys, welcome to Martinis and the Macabre, the podcast where we drunkenly discuss morbid murders, mysteries, and mayhem. I'm your host, Erica, joined by my husband and co-host, Billy. A lot of needles. A lot of needles. And a dildo. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. There's a dildo in on the, the road. side of the road, yeah. <laughs> Most other places you find, like, a used condom or, I don't know, an empty beer bottle. Not here. A dildo. Dildo. Probably used. Broken half, which means somebody went to Hammertown. <laughs> or it broke flying out of a car window. It was one of those solid rubber ones where you could, like, it goes wobble, 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 and you could, like, knock somebody out with it. You have dildo experience? Well, I dabble. <laughs> and... I remember seeing that. I was like, man, somebody really got it with that. <laughs> somebody went to town. Somebody really has some memories. <laughs> A lot of memories on that there piece of rubber. Oh, that's so gross. I don't want to know what those memories are. I don't want to know. Man, that poor dildo has seen a lot of safety words. <laughs> <laughs> and ignored every one of those safety words. Somebody probably got beat over some meth with that dildo. Blueberry, please, blueberry, stop. Oh, God. Okay. Enough dildo talk for this episode. Aw. You let down? Bummer. Sorry. (laughs) Well, this episode, as you guys know, I recently started working at a prison here in lovely Indiana, Meth Central. Yay. Um, prison isn't in our town, but it is within the state. And I found out during one of my training classes, which is called CTI. I don't know what it stands for, but we had to go and basically it was death by PowerPoint where they teach us how to talk with the inmates and do motivational interviewing and stands, shit like that. It stands for come train individuals. Maybe. Maybe. I think it's Correctional Training Institute, if I'm not mistaken. But you might be right. I'm probably right. (laughs) And uh, while we had some extra time, I didn't even know this, but where we do our training, this building is on the campus of the prison, but it's outside the prison fence. It's its own separate building. And actually people from correctional institutes all over the state come for the CTI training. And I mean, we had... Correctional officers, mental health professionals, nursing, Airmark, who does our, like, kitchen staff, um, from all over different facilities. Michigan City and Pendleton and everywhere. But on our campus is the IDOC Museum, which is Indiana Department of Corrections. And they actually have, like, a little museum set up. And I don't think it's open to the public. I've tried to look into it because I know Billy would love to go see it. Aw, it's not... No, but you can, like, email somebody and try and request, like, a thing. But I think it's more for, like, classes than personal viewing. Well, then I'm going to get you fired. (laughs) But it's one of the few places we could have our phones while we were in this building, which we can't take them into the prison because, you know, you might smuggle them to an offender or whatever. Um, But we could have them, but he wouldn't let us take out our phones while we went to the museum. The reason for that isn't necessarily because of 
like all the historical stuff so much as the fucking electric chair that we have on my fucking campus. We have Indiana's Old Betsy. It's no longer in use, but it's at my fucking campus and I stood in the room with it. They don't like us taking pictures of it because then stuff gets out on social media and it doesn't look real good for some reason. Well, you get those people who are anti-death penalty who probably would just jump right on Yeah, and... but we're still a death penalty state. Yeah, so it doesn't change anything. Why would that be any different taking a picture of a needle and being like, that's what we use to kill them? I mean, personally, in the picture, it's actually posted. You can find a picture of it online, the picture from our museum that shows it. It's in a glass case. It's actually... Really interesting. I think we stopped electrocution in 94. Erica, tell them what it's made of. Yeah, that's what I was getting to. It is actually made from the hanging gallows that we used prior to electrocution. Uh, So they took that scaffolding and shit down and took the wood and turned it into an electric chair to fry motherfuckers. And it now sits, and I was... Within inches of it, as close as I could get with there being a fucking glass around. It's in a glass case. And it's got little plaques and stuff on it so you can read about the history of it. And you can see, like, the the head attachment with, like, the sponge attached to it. And you can find pictures of it online. For some reason, they released, like, a... I don't know if it was a press release or what, but there is a picture of it online you can see. And it's actually sitting in the glass case in that museum, which I would have loved to have had my camera out and just taken pictures of the rest of the shit that was in there. There's like a whole glass case that's just full of John Dillinger shit, like authentic prison records and a telegram saying his mom was deathly ill and can he be released, you know, short term to go see her. Real authentic shit from John Dillinger. Now, we have that same stuff in a display case out in the hallway that's before you get into the museum. And so I took a picture of that because I knew Billy would like to see it. And there's another display case in that same hallway that's all about this one guy whose name is Stephen Judy. And I didn't realize this at the time, but a month or two ago, my mom was trying to suggest people that we could cover. And he was actually somebody that she suggested, but I didn't know who he was at the time. And it totally slipped my mind. Now, my mom's name is Judy. <laughs> so it's kind of weird. But this guy's last name is Judy. And I started looking at the display case at all this shit. And he's actually known as, like, the most hated killer in Indiana. And I thought, this would be a good one to cover. Now, it is a little more grim than what I would normally cover. Uh, I will let you guys know right now there is um, murder of children involved. So if you are opposed to hearing about that, I mean, I know we've covered that before, but this one's a little more, I don't know. This one was a really hard one for me to research just because I had to get in the right mindset because I almost felt too close because I sat in this class down the hall from the electric chair that fried this guy. (laughs) (laughs) and I saw the actual paperwork from prison records that was in the hallway. They have all these letters and stuff posted of people requesting clemency for him, and it just felt really close, but I thought it was also something really interesting just because I had that closeness to it. It wasn't something completely obscure, but obscure enough that probably a lot of you guys hadn't heard of it. So that's what this case is about today. So, just fair warning, 
There is murder. There are children involved. If you're adverse to that, you don't have to listen. In fact, I'm going to leave. <laughs> Bye. I don't like it when kids get hurt. I know. I don't either. And this is not one that I would typically cover because there isn't a lot of humor to be found in this case. But his backstory kind of is insane. So we'll, we'll jump into it. So on April 28th of 1979, so this was the year before I was born, it was a chilly Saturday morning. Three men were out hunting wild mushrooms near White Lick Creek in Morgan County, Indiana. And yes, all of the sources refer to these three men as mushroom, quote-unquote, hunters. Hunters. Not gatherers, not finders, not searchers. They're mushroom hunters. They sportsmen? I guess so when it comes to mushroom. They get one of them bronzed? Maybe. That's kind of cool. But they're mushroom hunters. That's Don't a, you take that from them. That's a big thing here in Indiana. I don't know about other places, but I have so many customers. When the, when the weather turns, they're like, so what are you going to do today? I said, I'm going to go home, take a shower, have a good cry, and go to bed. You know, my everyday life. And I'm like, what are you doing today? They're like, I'm going to go mushroom picking. And I'm like, you're like the 20th fucking guy. I don't get it. Who, I don't, whatever. I mean, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> And I don't know if it's edible mushrooms as far as, like, food mushrooms or, like, mushrooms. No, most of those, from what I believe, are found in shit. Maybe they were hunting for shit with mushrooms in it. Cow shit. They were hunting. And the mushrooms that grow out of the cow shit, they eat them. If I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. I don't know. I've never done mushrooms. Couldn't tell you. I don't know. So, um... The area that these quote-unquote hunters were in is near State Road 67, which is what I used to drive when I worked in Anderson. It kind of goes around our town and over to the west. So it's between State Road 67 and a town called Mooresville. And Mooresville is about 20 miles southwest of Indianapolis, or it's about a two-hour drive from where we live. Now, the mushroom hunters came across the body of a nearly naked woman in the creek and called the police. Don't air quote that. Hunters? They're hunters. Okay, guys. You can be hunters of (laughs) mushrooms. It's okay. I'm not going to belittle their profession. Is it dumb? Maybe. (laughs) Will I ever do it? Definitely not. Call them mushroom pickers. Mushroom gatherers. Don't call them fucking hunters. You're not creeping up on them. Dude, I had a customer one time try to get a case of beer off me, but in trade, he would give me a mushroom picking stick. I said, what's that? They have a mushroom picking stick? Yeah, it's like a walking stick. But it hunts mushrooms? I, I don't know. You know, they they say they use the, 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 the top of it to help dig them out or some, some weird shit like that. But all I could think of was, you know, you know how it would... Okay. Okay, you know how, like, when people are looking for ghosts, they take those two rods and they try Uh to make them cross? I can see a guy dressed like Gandalf or some shit (laughs) with his mushroom picking stick, and he's just holding it out in front of him like, Mushroom, mushroom, here, mushroom. Like, he's trying to make a mushroom call. I'm a mushroom. And it's like, oh, I found one. And, like, the stick points. You're like, good, good, good job, girl. <laughs> I don't think that's what happened, but... I was down. I was going to cover a case of beer. Then he explained it to me. I'm like, I don't fucking want your goddamn stick. <laughs> Take your fucking stick and go. <laughs> Shove your stick up your ass. 
Okay, so they called the police. And the police arrived and found the woman with her hands and feet bound with strips of material torn from her own clothing. And her slacks were thrown over her face. While searching the area, authorities discovered an even more disturbing scene. The body of a young girl was also found nearby in the creek, tangled on some tree branches. Then a shout came from downstream. We found two more! The bodies of two young boys had also been found about 100 yards downstream. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Police found what they assumed was the woman's bank book at the scene. It had the name Terry Lee Chastine printed on it with an Indianapolis address listed. Oh, FYI, I bet they don't hunt mushrooms anymore. Mm, probably not. I bet now they just work at Jiffy Lube and just <laughs> go along with their fucking lives. <laughs> Like, okay. like, so I, like they're at a bar and so I mentioned mushroom hunting and they take a long pull of their cigarette like mushroom hunter. Haven't heard that in a long time. <laughs> Jimmy, give me another drink. My name's Steve. It's Jimmy today. Make it double. Make it a double. <laughs> in, a, in a dirty glass. <laughs> you know, those collapsible sticks that black people use, but it's a mushroom picket stick and it's in a violin case. <laughs> He put it under the bed, like in the movie The Patriot. Mel Gibson has tomahawk and shit in uh-huh. a little box. Like that's where his mushroom mushroom picking stick is. The mushroom picking staff. <laughs> he like swore it off after they found dead bodies and apparently a people. No, I can't. A people pair hanging from a tree. And they're just like, I'm done. No more of this life. Time to get my shit together. So while trying to confirm the woman's identity... They discovered that this Terry Chastine that was listed on the bank book was a 21-year-old divorced mother of three who had one girl and two boys. Now, most sources list Terry as 22 or 23, but her date of birth was October 6, 1957, according to findagrave.com or whatever. And I've actually seen pictures of her gravestone, and it does list her date of birth as October 6, 1957. So that would actually just put her at 21. This Terry? sounds like the beginning of a horror movie. Like the beginning of Blair Witch. Yeah, pretty close. Terry lived with her boyfriend, Jack Lane. So, pretty sure that Terry and her children were the bodies that were found. Jack Lane was contacted by authorities. And, of course, they broke the news to him and asked if he would come and ID them. He confirmed that the woman was indeed Terry. And that the children were five-year-old Misty Ann Zollers, four-year-old Stephen Michael Chastine, and two-year-old Mark Lewis Chastine. Forensics showed that Terry had been tied up with the fabric strips, raped, and then gagged with more strips of fabric and strangled. All three of the children died from asphyxia due to drowning. Jack Lane informed the police that Terry had left with the kids that morning around 6.30 a.m. in his red 1978 Ford Granada, which I don't even know there was such a thing. But evidently, in 1978... They made Ford Granadas. I want to see it. 1978 Ford Granada. I'm going to look that up. And you'll recognize it when you see it. So Terry was going to take the kids that morning to the babysitters, and then she was going to head to her work in the produce department of a Marsh supermarket, 
which FYI, all of our marshes closed down a few years ago. So no more marsh. Bye, Marsh. Bye, Marsh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing those back in the day. Fucking everywhere. So she was going to work at Marsh Supermarket and the strips of fabric that they, the killer had used to strangle her and tie her up had actually come from her Marsh uniform. And so Jack Lane tells the officers that he had actually passed his own abandoned car on I-465, which is the big road that loops around Indianapolis. And he saw it on I-465 while he was driving to meet the authorities to identify the bodies. He told them where it was located and they had it towed for examination. Now, within the next 24 hours, of course, because everyone was shocked by this, no one in this area had ever heard of any kind of murder like this before. And within the next 24 hours, multiple witnesses came forward claiming to have seen a red and silverish slash gray truck in the White Lake Creek area the morning of the murders. One witness saw the truck parked near the red Ford Granada and a blonde man looking under the Granada's hood. Another witness saw a man and a woman in a red and gray truck, while a third witness saw a blonde man near the creek carrying a child under one arm with what was described as a, quote, child-shaped bundle under his other arm, whatever that means. It could have been a kid, maybe it wasn't. I I guess they couldn't verify 100% that it was a child. How do they verify that? He had a, a child bundle. shaped bundle. He had a bundle under his arm. What did it look like? Like a kid. <laughs> then it was a kid. And they also saw a third child walking in front of them. One of the witnesses recalled seeing this same red and gray truck at a nearby construction site several times in the past. So police were able to track down the truck based on where it had been seen at this construction site. And they traced it back to a man named Robert Carr. So Carr had a truck. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Authorities decided to pay a little visit to Robert Carr. And they found the truck parked outside of his home. Robert acknowledged that it was indeed his truck. But he told them that he had lent it to his 22-year-old foster son, Stephen Judy, on Friday night, the night before the murders. He claimed Judy hadn't returned it until Saturday morning sometime after 8 a.m. And Stephen Judy happened to be a bricklayer at the construction site where the truck had been seen many times. Judy wasn't there at the car residence at the time, but when he showed up a short time later, he was quickly arrested as police weren't taking any chances because Stephen Judy was a well-known name to authorities. So he was known for walking around town with a child-shaped bundle. <laughs> Hunting mushrooms. Hunting mushrooms with his mushroom bow staff of his elders. <laughs> Why don't we see mushroom sticks in, like, The Princess Bride or Willow? It seems like it would be a good place for it. Maybe they do, and we just never knew that's what they were. I guess I'm going to have to rewatch The Princess Bride. Bummer. It's only, like, my favorite fucking movie. <laughs> well, Stephen Timothy Judy was born to parents Vernon Eugene and Myrtle Luella on May 24th of 1956. The couple had been married in 1954 and had a turbulent relationship. Vernon was in and out of jail and physically violent towards Myrtle, while Myrtle brought random men home regularly. I mean, just match made in heaven. Yeah. So until early adolescence, Stephen was surrounded by sex, crime, and violence. Perfect rearing for children. By age 12, he was shoplifting and already starting to experiment with sex and alcohol. 
At age 13, Steve and Judy went off the fucking deep end. He went to the apartment of an Indianapolis woman named Carol Emig, posing as a Boy Scout. Some sources say he was selling, like, cookies or popcorn or something, and some sources say he was selling Boy Scout tickets, but I don't know what that would be. But he was posing as a Boy Scout selling something. When he realized that she was home alone, he forced his way into her apartment using a pocket knife and raped her at knife point in her bedroom. 13. At 13. And that wasn't all. He proceeded to then stab her 42 times, only stopping after the blade broke. Then, God. he pulled out a hatchet and began swinging, managing to fracture Carol's skull and cutting off one of her fingers while she tried to block the hatchet blows. Wow. 13. Mind you, Noah is 14. I could not imagine him last year going and doing some shit like this. That is insane. Steven's a little fucking psycho. Yeah. Well, he ended up fleeing, leaving her to die. And when he got home covered in blood, he told his sister that he had been attacked. She, of course, called the popo, and he eventually confessed the true story to them. Carol underwent brain surgery and survived, minus a finger, and went on to testify against Steven in court. He spent six months at a center for delinquent juveniles before being admitted to Central State Hospital from October of 1970 until January of 1973. During his treatment there, he was diagnosed as a sexual psychopath in his early teens. Dude's fucking crazy. One hell of a title to have. At the age of 15, so when he got out of the hospital, Stephen was fostered out to Robert and Mary Carr because evidently... Authorities deemed that obviously he wasn't in a very good home situation. (laughs) You know, with his violent criminal father and promiscuous mother. So they fostered him out to Robert and Mary Carr. The Carrs had several young children at the time and were completely unaware of the violent details that led to Stephen's hospitalization. And I don't know if that was or still is a common practice. You know, not informing foster parents that their potential foster child raped and tried to kill a woman at age 13, but it should be. I'd take a hard pass on that kid, especially if there were other children in the household. But they knew nothing about this. They just knew that he had some kind of meltdown and some violence and that was it. (laughs) So they brought him in. He lived there for about a year. Until Mary caught him making what is quoted as an obscene phone call. I don't know exactly what it entailed, but she caught him making this phone call, got all up in his ass about it. He got pissed, decided to take off, and he stole the car's new car. They had a car at the time, I guess, not a truck. So he stole their new car, which he then crashed in Illinois. From 1975 until 1979, it was basically a life of crime for Stephen Judy. He spent 44 out of the 48 months in jail or prison during that time. So in a four-year time period, he was only out for a total of four months. He was a busy guy. Yeah. In July of 1975, he physically assaulted a female named Susan McFadgen. 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 Yeah, see? I don't know why you did that, but okay. (laughs) Sounded good. Susan C. <laughs> Susan McFagden. With her mushroom staff. <laughs> Susan's mushroom staff. McFagden. Fadgen. 
Where'd you get those mushrooms, eh? (laughs) The attack was stopped when passersby heard her screams, saving her from possibly being raped or killed. Stephen served less than two years in prison for that attack and went back to live with the cars on release. In April of 1977, Stephen got into the car of a woman named Pamela Barger in a parking lot. He threatened her with a knife and kidnapped her. But she was able to jump from the car and escape on foot and gave authorities a good description of her attacker. Stephen was arrested and spent many months in jail prior to the trial, though the trial ended in a hung jury. So Stephen did spend some time in prison for parole violation, but not necessarily for the kidnapping. By November of 78, Stephen was in jail again, this time for an armed robbery. He and a group of accomplices had robbed a store and fled in a car. And one of the store clerk's sons happened to arrive to pick her up at the end of her shift, just as the group was taking off. So the son was able to give police a description of the car and the license plate number, which then led to Stephen's arrest shortly after. He sat in jail for months on this charge until the cars bonded him out in late April of 1979, just a week before the murders. So if they hadn't bailed him out, this If they hadn't bailed him out, this may not have happened. So that brings us up to the murders and Stephen's arrest for them. Stephen at first denied any involvement, claiming to have been with his girlfriend that morning. His girlfriend initially corroborated this alibi, but it was soon discovered that she had been dropped off by Stephen in the very early morning hours of Saturday morning. This left a window of many hours between dropping her off and then returning the truck to his foster father sometime after 8 a.m. Stephen eventually broke and admitted to the police that he had committed the rape and murders, laying out exactly what happened the morning of April 28th. Time to take a drink. This is where it gets pretty rough. I'm going to take a drink. Everyone take a drink if you got a drink. Just do it. (laughs) Okay. Stephen and his girlfriend had been out that Friday night and then into early Saturday. Now, I'm assuming I don't see any specific time listed in any of the sources I saw. But, you know, when you're out partying Friday night, maybe 2, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning. Yeah, sure. he, He ended up dropping his girlfriend off at her home sometime early Saturday morning before the sun came up. But he claimed he hadn't been tired, so then he drove around Indianapolis until about 6.30 a.m. when he spotted Terry on I-465, which is the loop that goes around Indy, near the I-70 interchange. And this is actually the interchange Billy and I would take driving to and from Colorado, so we've probably driven past there many times. Probably. And if you're a, a patron, we just recorded an episode talking about our travels to Colorado and uh, you can hear a little more about that and the meth head that we came across. So, patreon.com slash martinis and the cob yeah. if you want to hear. But yeah, we've actually been around this area several times. At least I have because I've driven there and back without Billy too. Um, but yeah, it's kind of creepy to think that we've been by there. So, Stephen pulled alongside Terry, motioning for her to pull over and pointing to her rear wheel. She unfortunately did pull over. And Stephen told her it looked like her rear wheel was loose. He offered to tighten it, and Terry agreed, pulling a lug wrench from her trunk for him to use. Stephen tightened the lug nuts, but at some point he ended up getting under the Ford Granada's hood. Now, according to an editorial from 22 years after the murders in our local paper here in Muncie, which happened to be dated February 9th, 2002, which is our fucking wedding day. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, weird. 
The two both returned to their own vehicles after he tightened the wheel. But then Terry got back out and approached Stephen, saying something was wrong with her emergency brake, prompting him to get back out of his truck. So it's unclear if Stephen really did intend to help Terry and just decided, like, in the moment to attack her, or if he lied about the loose tire to get her to pull over as a ploy, intending to harm her from the beginning. I, I couldn't really find a definitive answer there. But there is a book on this case called Burn, Judy, Burn, that may have some more details, but I was unable to read it prior to this recording. I, I researched this all kind of last minute. It was it was a very hard research. I had to get in the right mindset to do it. And by the time that I started doing it, I wouldn't have had time to read it. The book's only like, I think, 212 pages or something, but I, I didn't have time to read it. But you can find it on Amazon, and there's a Kindle format if you're interested in reading it. But Either way, whether he intended this from the beginning or not, Stephen ended up getting under the hood of the Ford and removing a coil wire from the ignition system, rendering the car inoperable, which was deliberate. Terry, now stranded on the side of a major interstate with three small children in the cold morning hours of April, accepted an offer for a ride from Stephen. This guy saw her in what appeared to be some kind of distress because he thought her tire was loose, and he has her pull over and he helps her and she thinks, okay, now I'm stuck. I'll, I'll take the ride. And of course, this is 1979. Things were a little different back then. Yeah, people were probably more trusting. Yeah. So Terry sat on the passenger side of the truck and her three children sat between her and Stephen. But Stephen didn't drive them to their requested location. He instead drove them to White Lick Creek. I don't have any details of what happened exactly during the ride, but with the children being between Stephen and Terry, we can assume that he probably made threats to harm the kids to keep Terry in line. I mean, most mothers wouldn't jump out to escape and leave their children sitting next to their kidnapper. And since she was not between Stephen and the kids, it's not like she could physically protect them from him or like push them out of the truck at a stoplight or when the truck slowed down for their own safety. She was kind of at his mercy because the kids were between them. Once at the creek area... As witnesses saw, Stephen carried at least one of the children and a, quote, child-shaped bundle. There it is again. End quote. As they walked toward the creek. When they were all in an isolated area, he sent the children further down the path ahead of him and Terry to play. He ripped Terry's clothes using the strips to bind her and raped her. She began screaming, so he shoved strips into her mouth in an attempt to muffle her cries. The children heard their mom's screams and ran back to where she was and began yelling at Stephen. He then strangled Terry until she was dead, picked up her body, and threw it in the creek, all of which the children witnessed. And that's one of the hardest parts for me right there is he did all this in front of the kids. He then picked each of the children up one by one and then threw them as far as he could into the extremely cold water. Now, some sources say that he held them under the water, although I don't agree with that. I think he actually threw them, and I'll tell you why here in a minute. Um, I actually looked up the temperature in Mooresville that day, and the low temp that morning was 39. So at around 7 or 7.30 a.m. when this all occurred, it was probably pretty close to that, meaning the water had to be close to freezing. Stephen told the authorities that he looked back as he walked away and he saw one of the children trying to stand up in the creek. And that's why I think he had to have thrown them. If he held them down and drowned them, they wouldn't have been standing up. 
Yeah. They were trying to get up out of the water. So leaving them for dead, because obviously he knew that they probably couldn't get out of the situation. He then tried to get rid of his footprints. And I'm assuming he did that by like raking the ground with something or raking his foot across it. And he headed back to his truck. He drove away from the scene, which was witnessed, stopped and bought a soft drink, and threw away the coil wire he had taken from the Ford Granada. Because, you know, he worked up thirst. Yeah, okay. That's what I want to do after I murder a mom and her three kids, is stop for a soft drink. Yeah. Many pieces of evidence corroborated Stephen's recollection of events. The coil wire was indeed missing from the car that Terry had been driving. It was concluded that Terry had been raped. A coat at the crime scene had semen stain on it that was compatible with Stephen's blood and what is labeled as an H antigen that he carried as well. And that's listed in a court document that you can find online. But that's probably a typo and it's probably supposed to be an H antigen. What's be- that? It's it's a part of the red blood cell. Um, an indigen is something to do with plant life. That's why I don't think this has anything to do with it. I think it would have to be an antigen. Now, this type of sample could have only been produced by a very small percentage of males. Terry's cause of death was strangulation, and Stephen claimed to have strangled her before putting her in the water. The children died from asphyxia due to drowning, which matched up with Stephen's claim that he threw the young children into the water. They most likely couldn't swim, given their ages, and with the cold and the movement of the water, regardless of water depth, it would have been deadly. And I did look up creek depths, which only tracked gauge height back to 2012. And gauge height, which I had to look up, is the height of water in a stream above a set reference point. And it looks like, at least over the past six years that they've been tracking it, that the creek is generally seven to eight feet deep in most areas. So maybe the area where the child was trying to stand up was a shallower area, but it's a deeper creek than what I would have expected it to be. When I think of a creek, I think, it, you know, it's a foot deep, yeah. two, two feet deep. But well, a creek. It's, I guess, a fairly large creek. There At what were, point does it stop being a creek and become a river? I don't know. Okay. And what differentiates between a creek and a stream? I don't know. I don't know these things, Billy. I'm going to look that up. <laughs> you keep going. I'm going I'm to learn me something. There were also two threads found in the truck that, quote, substantially matched the threads of one article of Terry Chastine's clothing, end quote, according to court documents. Add in all of the eyewitness accounts, both before and after the murders, and authorities had Stephen Judy dead to rights. Judy's defense team claimed insanity at trial in front of a nine-man and three-woman jury. But only one psychologist, Dr. Kathy Spath-Widem, testified for the defense claiming that she believed Stephen had been legally insane at the time of the murders. She cited 14 years of records on Stephen's life and mental condition, testifying that he had chronic emotional problems and that he had an antisocial personality disorder. He's got fucking problems, yeah. Two court-appointed psychiatrists, Dr. John Kuyaker and Dr. Larry Davis... Could not be found because they were out hunting mushrooms. (laughs) Maybe. They must have gotten a hold of a good mushroom hunting stick. It's riveting. It's riveting. The sport. The sport of mushroom hunting. <laughs> Why are you buying that tree stand for? Gonna get you a buck? Nah. Shrooms. Okay. I'm gonna need this camo too. Okay. And I want him to see me coming. And deer urine. Why? <laughs> Just cause. Okay. Cause I'm a hunter. <laughs> 
Well, these two psychiatrists took the stand for the state. They agreed that Stephen had an antisocial personality disorder. They agreed he was fucked up. Yeah, but they stated that he was legally sane when he committed the murders, which makes sense considering he then attempted to cover his tracks by getting rid of his footprints and throwing away the coil wire. He knew he did something wrong. Stephen also took the stand himself, testifying at length about the rape and murders. He stated, quote, It all seems unreal, like my head was in a barrel, end quote. He also testified that he had been committing crimes since around 10 years old, claiming involvement in approximately 200 shoplifting incidents, nearly as many burglaries, 20 to 50 robberies, around 24 car thefts, and 12 to 16 rapes, many he was never caught or tried for. During those years, from age 10 on, he had been examined by around 30 psychiatrists by his own estimation. But court records state that his mental health records reveal, quote, that every psychiatrist who has ever examined Judy has been of the opinion that he is of normal or above average intelligence and that he is legally sane, end quote. The jury wasted no time finding him guilty on four counts of first-degree murder on February 2nd, 1980, with the sentencing phase taking place immediately after the verdict. Yeah, the whole thing, average intelligence, and he's legally sane. I think some people out there are just bad. Some people out there are just fucking evil. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, for some reason, though, Stephen didn't want to fight anymore. He ordered his defense counsel to not present any kind of mitigating evidence and address the court himself, demanding the death sentence. After just fighting in court, saying, no, I was insane. Now, all of a sudden, he's like, wait, forget all that. Just drop everything. Let me die. Let's just wrap this shit up. (laughs) He told jurors, quote, you had better put me to death because next time it might be one of you or your family, end quote. He told the judge, quote, I honestly want you to give me the death penalty because one day I may get out. If you don't want another death hanging over your head, I think that's the only thing you can do, end quote. So does that to say, is that to suggest that he can't stop himself? I don't know that he's saying that he can't stop himself or that he won't stop himself. I mean, if he'd really been involved in all of these other crimes he's claiming that he just never got caught for, I mean... Now he's moved on to murder, and not just one, but four at one time. Uh-huh. And that's after trying to kill a woman back when he was fucking 13. Which still, this, it's still, that's fucking insane. And you know, the women that he beat and kidnapped, that he probably would have killed had he not been stopped, or they'd gotten away. Mm-hmm. So, it's quite possible he wouldn't have stopped. The jury was swift with their decision, but killed some time so as not to appear too hasty. <laughs> Nice. Jury foreman John Sappington later stated, quote, I said, let's sit here for a while so it doesn't look so bad. And what have I said? I've mentioned that shit before. If you're on a jury, fucking milk it, man. Take your time. <laughs> you're on the government's dime. Order some pizzas. Fucking have a party. Yeah, and, and I believe this was a quote in that article that was in our local newspaper. He said, I said, let's sit here for a while so it doesn't look so bad. We had some coffee and then called for the bailiff. See? They got it. <laughs> They're like, oh, man, we can't go out there too quick. They're going to make it look like we didn't even take time to go over it or review it or debate back and forth. No, they wanted him fucking you know, dead. I know. That's what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> oh, they're probably going to think this if we come back too quick. And they're like, fuck it. Y'all thirsty? What are y'all doing? <laughs> Smoke them if you got them. Well, they voted for the death penalty. And on February 25th, 1980, Judge Jeffrey V. Bowles formally sentenced Stephen Judy to death via the electric chair. 
Stephen was transferred to death row at Indiana State Prison in Michigan City, which is in the northernmost part of the state along Lake Michigan. I actually had to look it up because I knew we had a prison up in Michigan City, but I wasn't sure where, but it's right along the southern border of Lake Michigan. You know, I looked online because I'm always wanting to get out of Muncie. So I looked at like the best places to live in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, yeah. Tell you how fucking weird the internet is. Before I typed in best best cities to live in in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. First one was like your first like list that shows this and click on this to continue. Re- the second one was like Nazis. It was like a Nazi website. What? And I was like, what the fuck? Why is that there? But yeah, I even thought I misspelled something. So I retyped it in. No, it came up again. We'll have to look into that. That's I'm not, weird. I'm not clicking on that. No, I'm just curious as to what would bring that up in the Google search for best places to live. I have no clue. I kind of don't want to know. Oh, but anyway, Michigan City was on that list. Hmm. as one of the best, nicest places to live as far as like the education system, um, rate of employment, and crime. It's not too far from Gary. It looks like it's maybe like 100 miles. I could be off. I didn't like measure. Uh. But there's like Michigan City and then... Down further to the southwest is Gary, and then you kind of do that upswing back on the other side, like Michigan, and there's Chicago. I was like, hmm, I don't know. Gary, that's our Detroit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Used to be the murder capital of the United States. Don't go it's to- where Michael Jackson was born. Don't go to Gary. Don't go to Gary. So, with any death sentence comes a mandatory appeal. But Stephen got the Indiana Supreme Court to allow him to waive his appeal and the five judges upheld the convictions 5-0 to zero on January 30th, 1981. They affirmed the death sentence 4-1. to one. But despite the horrible crimes committed and the fact that Stephen Judy was willing to die for them, people actually petitioned the governor, who was Robert Orr at the time, for clemency. The ACLU, or American Civil Liberties Union, if you're not from the U.S., tried to file motions to prevent the execution from taking place but they were dismissed. And I'll try to put up a couple of pictures I took, like I mentioned before, in the display case, the letters and groups that sent um, requests to overturn the death sentence or stay the execution. And uh, I already mentioned that that's in the hallway outside of the, the IDOC museum, but I do have actual pictures that I took of some of those, so I'll try and put those up. Well, all of these requests were dismissed because, <laughs> you know, the government's like... Um, Fuck you. We make the rules. Yeah. <laughs> so they dismissed all those and his execution was set for March 9th. <laughs> it's like one of those things like, okay, thanks for coming out. Like, yeah, yeah, appreciate it. Okay. As they wadded up and threw it in the trash. In front of them. Yeah. Oh, you made some, you made some really compelling points. Yeah. So they set his execution for March 9th, 1981, less than two years after the murders took place. Stephen told reporters prior to his execution day, quote, I've got a whole box of bad memories. Anything good never made an impression on me. End quote. He made wisecracks to his foster family about his impending death and joked to his lawyer that he was going to quit smoking. In the 24 hours prior to the execution, Stephen met with family and his foster father claims he did cry at one point. But everyone claims he was calm, remorseless, comedic, or a combination of the three at the time. He gave his wristwatch to a fellow death row inmate that he had formed a friendship with, and then enjoyed his last meal, 
which consisted of prime rib, lobster, baked potatoes, salad, and dinner rolls. He just kind of went traditional. Yeah. Nothing crazy. He did request beer, but that was denied. Sure. I don't know. I mean, like, not, not even just for Steve and Judy, but if that's your last meal on this earth, give him his fucking beer. Gives a shit. You're going to Well, light- they want him to be in the right mind for when he dies. You're going to light him up. And, like, <laughs> Maybe that's why it's to, you're in clear sound mind and body whenever you, you go. Well, shortly before go time, Stephen was given a 10 milligram injection of Valium, not because he seemed scared, his foster father said, but because he was hyper and his muscles were tense. His lawyer, I read, tried to talk him out of taking it. He wanted him to have a clear head when he went into the execution chamber, but he took it anyway. And I guess it didn't so much dope him up. It just kind of relaxed his muscles. He gave a letter in an envelope to his lawyer and instructed him to wait until after the execution to open it. And as the time came closer, a patch was shaved on the crown of his head and one leg of his jeans was slit up the side. Which I guess back in the early 80s, you can wear jeans in prison. Now they just have khakis. Oh. Like, they look like scrubs. Of course they have jeans. Haven't you seen Shawshank? Yeah, this is 1981. Oh, it's still a good documentary. Not like 41. Best documentary ever. So. (laughs) So he walked into the execution chamber unassisted. They didn't have to force him or anything. And he was placed into the electric chair, which I said is called Old Betsy, and buckled in by four guards. A leg electrode was attached to his calf, and the leather cap containing the head electrode was fastened on his head. His head was then draped with a black cloth. Just after midnight on March 9th, 1981, Stephen Judy spoke his last words, quote, I don't hold no grudges. This is my doing. I am sorry it happened, end quote. The warden ordered the execution to commence, and 2,300 volts of electricity were administered to Stephen's body over a 10-second period, followed by a second jolt of 500 volts for 20 seconds. Smoke supposedly rose from his head, and his tense body shook violently. Then, nothing. He was declared dead by the prison doctor, you know, after he cooled off. After he quit smoking. (laughs) Four four and a half minutes later at 12.12 a.m., he did quit smoking. (laughs) 24-year-old Stephen Judy was the 73rd person in Indiana to be executed. Went from a is to a was. Stephen's lawyer, Stephen Harris, opened the letter Judy had given him before the execution. Now, Judy had said in the past that he would make an admission of other crimes, including murders, and Harris assumed that that's what was in the letter that he gave him. Instead, he found several pages of stenographer's notebook paper, with only the first page written on. It read, quote, I'm sorry, Steve, but I've decided to handle it this way because I care too much for my foster mom and family. I hope you can understand. Thank you for all that you've done for me, end quote. And then his signature. Harris was quoted by our local paper as saying, that little son of a bitch when he read the note. He fully expected him to make this big, huge admission, and he's like, that motherfucker. I, that's what I was thinking, too, is, like, everybody's surrounding him. He opens it, you know, and he's just like, okay, you know, I was motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephen Judy's case was the only capital punishment case Harris has ever agreed to take on. After that one, his first one, he was like, nope, I'm not doing these anymore. Many people, including Stephen's lawyer, claim Stephen was often personable, polite, and cooperative. Quote, It was a strange situation for me, Harris said. 
to be there with this guy who seemed so normal, so sociable on the surface, who was capable of such horrible things. It's scary for me to think how many people like him are out there. End quote. Stephen Judy was buried in Floral Park Cemetery in Indianapolis, the arrangements being made by his foster family. And I did read one source that said his mother um, supported the death penalty for him, his biological mother. So the only support he got was from his foster family. Terry Chastine and her daughter Misty were buried together in Brownsburg Cemetery in Hendricks County. Stephen and Mark were buried together in Fairfield Friends Cemetery in Hendricks County, which I thought was odd that they weren't in the same cemetery, but I guess the same cemetery as their father. And I believe their father, their biological father, passed away in 2006. Oh. And that was the really emotionally difficult to research case of Stephen Judy. Glad it's over with. (laughs) I, I thought it would be an interesting one because I just had such a closeness to it. But then once I actually sat down to research it, I was like... Wow, this is almost too close. (laughs) Almost too much. And to think about these poor kids having to watch this happen to their mom and then to have that happen to them. It was just, it was really, really tough. So, you're welcome, guys. Thanks for putting me through that. (laughs) I'm going to blame you. That's all I got. You know, I'm starting to think this Stephen Judy guy. Was a real dick? He's a real jerk. Yeah. I didn't care for him. Hey, man. Cut it out. And there are a couple sources that list him as, like, Indiana's most hated killer. That he could do that in front of the kids and then to the kids. Yeah. You know, make them watch him kill his mom, their mom, and then... Uh, it's just... I don't want to think about it anymore. So, yeah. So, that that's it, guys. Sorry about that one. It was a rough one. We made it through it. Yay! Mushroom Hunters for the win. Yeah. <laughs> So thanks for listening to the episode, guys. Thanks for sticking it out. You get a gold star if you made it this far. And if you liked what you heard, please don't take the topic of this one into consideration. But if you like our show, please get on iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating and review. This really is the best way to help us. It's the easiest way to help us. It really helps with the visibility of the show. It makes us easier to find. We know it can be a real pain in the ass, but we would really appreciate it. Get on there, you know, like I said last time, fuck you, Audible, whatever you want to put, give us that five-star rating interview. It really means a lot to us. And please check out the other great podcasts on the Murderly Network and show them some love. You can find all of us at murder.ly. And if you'd really like to be a baller and financially support the show please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash martinis in the cob and make a pledge. Just like I mentioned earlier, you can hear about our behind the scenes shit if you'd like, or usually once a month, we'll try to put out stupid criminals, something like that. It's a lot of fun. And for only a dollar, you can get all that. You get access to the Patreon only audio each month, and you will also get a shout out on the show. And just for a few dollars more, you can get some exclusive goodies And so, of course, once again, thank you to our patrons, Kate, Hunter, Cooper, Bridget, Molly, Sue, Holly, Heather, Stephen, Corey, Amy, Donald, Christy, and Donovan. You awesome snuggle bunnies have our undying love. You guys are the best. And you can now make a one-time donation in the amount of your choosing via our PayPal link on our website, martinisandthemacabre.com, and it's near the bottom of the homepage underneath the Patreon link. 
So find it there. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Martinis and the Macabre and on Twitter at Martini underscore Macabre. And be sure to join our fan page on Facebook as well at Friends Who Like Martinis and the Macabre. We love interacting with you guys. Feel free to post whatever you would like on the pages. We're not going to moderate the shit out of you and say you can't put that here. Put whatever you like. Funny, scary, graphic, horror, anything you like. We're, we're down for all of it. Feel free to share our posts. Sharing our pages, posts, and tweets really helps us get the word out. So feel free to share away. And sorry I haven't been on there that much recently, of course, with the work schedule and everything. But you know I still love you guys. You're right here. You're in my heart. Of course, visit our website, like I mentioned before, martinisinthemacabre.com, not only to make a donation, but to learn a little bit about us, listen to our complete episode catalog, or to listen to all of the songs created by Minimus Noah that we use at the end of each episode. Of course, keep listening because another one will be at the end of this episode. And be sure to find his first official album release called Views on iTunes, Spotify, and many other music providers. There are links to that as well on the page with all the different music platforms you can find it on. And for any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, shoot us an email at martinisinthemacabre at gmail.com. Or you can use the contact page on the website. And don't forget to get your tickets to the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago next July. Visit tcpf2019.com to get yours now. We want to see you guys there. We will be there and it will be fun. We will make it fun. Mm. You're going to have fun. We're going to fun the shit out of this. Fun! <laughs> Billy, it's so nice to meet you. I'm going to look at like, fun! <laughs> have fun! All right. So once again, guys, thank you so much for listening. You got anything you need to add? Yeah, we got a we got a mention on Twitter from um, Whining About Crime. They listed us. They listed a whole bunch of mm-hmm. a whole bunch of them. look. See the one that's not blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they put it down as under, Martinis underscore Macabre. And then Kate from English Was Bliss podcast said tagging martini underscore macabre because their twitter handle is sadly singular although all of us wish it was plural (laughs) she said oh no it didn't work i'll have to fix my copy thank you for catching it it's it's like how dare you make a single error on this amazing list i hope it didn't sound critical i just want to make sure martini underscore macabre had a same happy note on a monday morning (laughs) and she said okay i updated it uh my info hopefully it never happens again i love those two amazing folks Aw, thank you, Bonnie. I said, we're trying to be just as cool as you get. We're trying to be as cool as all of you. And then she posted that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Bonnie's a a friend of mine on Facebook as well. She hosts Whining About Crime. So check her out, too. And, of course, check out Ignorance is Bliss with Kate. She's been our fan from way, way back. And we're her fan. Yes. We're her fans. Yes, she does an amazing job. I have a feeling here soon on Twitter or Facebook when this episode comes out, somebody will be like, you know, Billy didn't really talk a lot. Yeah. Like, well, I, I have my limits. Yeah. And I, I, I stuck him in a, a corner and <laughs> didn't really give him wiggle room with this one. <laughs> I didn't like this. Mm. I didn't like this topic at all. Yeah, I didn't either. I, I, I thought it'd be a good one, and it just, it was rough. Why can't we have a serial hugger? Because then it Go wouldn't. Go around giving out hugs. Then it wouldn't be macabre. I know what I'm going to do in Chicago next year. (laughs) Billy, Snuggle Bunny Jones. Snuggles the fuck out of you. The Serial Hugger. Part two. I don't even know there's a one, but we're going to start with part two. 
That doesn't make sense. Have a nice night, guys. <laughs> All right. Stay safe, snuggle bunnies, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.